0: Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that this—that it it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty
1: God, we come to you now as your people gathered together, one body in Christ, to hear from our Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you so much for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that your Word makes us wise unto salvation. Lord, we pray that you would use the Scriptures today to shore up our faith, that you would use the Scriptures today to encourage us and fill us with hope. Lord, we pray that you would use the Scriptures today to teach and instruct us and even to guard us from error so that we might remain a pure bride for Christ, so Lord be honored, be glorified in our time in your words, speak to us, we ask in Jesus name. Amen. Amen, please go ahead and grab a seat. well this morning, Galatians chapter three this this means that we are now a third of the way through the book of Galatians it's six chapters long we've gotten through chapters one and two, and so we're a third of the way there and You'll notice, if you've been with us through the series, that we've been talking a lot about the gospel. Uh, We use that word constantly, uh, no matter what book of the Bible we're preaching, to be honest with you, but especially here in the book of Galatians. Um, I was even thinking about all the titles of our sermons up to this point. We've got these titles so far, Gospel Greetings, No Other Gospel, Not Man's Gospel, Not Another Gospel, Living in Step with the Gospel, And this morning, I felt like I couldn't deviate from that. So the sermon is titled, A Brief History of the Gospel. And so I know for some in the church, uh, you might be sitting there going, I'm kind of tired of hearing the gospel. That's all we're talking about here is gospel, gospel, gospel. Okay, pastor, we get it. We get it. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Can we maybe move on now to the Christian life a little bit? The answer to that question is no, because you don't move on from the gospel in your effort to move forward in the Christian life. In fact, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 3 are going to make that point crystal clear for us. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3 are going to teach us that if we're doing things right, we never actually move on. We stay anchored in the gospel. Let me put it to you this way. Faith in Jesus not only saves you, past tense, from the penalty of your sins, faith in Jesus is saving you, present tense, from the power of your sins. Again, faith in Jesus Christ not only saves you, past tense, from the penalty of your sins, faith in Jesus Christ is saving you, present tense, from the power of your sins. It is faith in the Son of God that is going to empower you to grow spiritually, to start walking like Christ, living like Christ, or to use Pauline language, walking in the Spirit. And we're going to get into that in a few minutes here. So from beginning to end, the Christian life is about faith in Jesus Christ. You start it that way, you carry on that way, and you complete your Christian journey with faith in Jesus now, chapter 3 is a turning point in the letter. Um, the direct address to the Galatians there in verse 1 signals to us as readers that there's a shift from what we were describing as the autobiographical section of the letter, meaning Paul sharing his own story, to now the kind of center of the letter, the central argument of the letter of Galatians. And what Paul's going to do now, starting in chapter 3, is he's going to begin to defend for the next two chapters what he taught us last week, namely that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. He's going to defend that and unpack that from numerous different perspectives in the next two chapters. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he's going to work out some of the implications of justification by faith alone. And so again, now he's kind of defending what he just wrote. He's going to defend this notion that, yes, in fact, if you're a member of God's family, you are so because of faith alone in Christ alone. And the way he's going to begin this defense is by reminding the Galatian Christians of their own personal experience. Or to put it differently, to remind them of their own personal history. That's the first of two points this morning and it's verses 1 through 5. Let me just reread it, zero in your attention on the text here. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 4, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now Paul just comes out of the gates here with uh, some harsh language. He calls the Galatians foolish. You've become fools, he's saying. In other words, for the Apostle Paul, their departure from the true gospel was not from careful, thoughtful reflection. He thinks that this decision to start entertaining the idea to revert to the law now, to somehow perfect their Christian journey, he thinks this decision is so insane that they have been duped or possibly even been charmed in order to go this direction. He thinks this is absolute insanity. How could you have possibly begun your journey by faith in the crucified Messiah only to now abandon that for some other thing? And Paul says, look, it was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, what exactly is he saying here? Well, historically, we know that these Christians in the Galatian churches, which again is in modern-day Turkey, they were not in Jerusalem in AD 33, roughly, when Jesus was nailed to the cross of Calvary. They weren't there as eyewitnesses, so he's not talking about how these Galatians physically and literally saw Jesus hanging on the cross. What he means here when he says that it was before your very eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified is he means that through his own and through his missionary team's powerful preaching of the gospel with precision and clarity, it was as if they had seen Jesus hanging on the cross and they had understood at the level of their heart what that meant for them that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. A good cross reference is 1 Thessalonians 1 5. Here's what Paul describes to the Thessalonian believers. He says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul's point is that when he preached the gospel, in Thessalonica just like when he preached the gospel in Galatia it wasn't just him there talking or sharing information when he was preaching the gospel the Holy Spirit was taking those words as they came out of his mouth and the Holy Spirit was making those words powerful that they were striking these people at the level of the heart and faith was born and they were being converted because they heard the message of the gospel he's describing powerful preaching. He preached it and they heard it and they believed it. And he's saying, that's how this whole thing started. When I came to Galatia, I presented Jesus as the one crucified on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be reconciled back to God. And you believe that. That's how the whole thing got started. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2:2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For Paul, this is the heart of the gospel message. It is the way that God reconciled us back to himself. And so he preached this message everywhere he went. And so church, I do not apologize that every single week I declare the gospel to you. That every single week we talk about Christ crucified for your sins I can serve you no better than to week in and week out remind you that Jesus was crucified for your sins and he was raised for your justification and you add nothing to that you just trust in Christ if I do that for 52 weeks a year for the next 30 years of my life there's nothing better I could do for you as your pastor period this is it This is what we need week in and week out to rehearse the gospel. Because here's what happens. When you hear this, this amazing news, and you receive it by faith, here's what happens. You are justified. We learned that last week. Meaning God declares you righteous. You're not righteous. But God declares you righteous because Christ is righteous. And through faith you're in Him so God sees His righteousness in you now. So when you believe in Jesus you're justified and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says here in Galatians 3. That they received the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit was in them. And so Paul's question in verse 2 goes like this, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now this is a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. The Galatian Christians received the Spirit long before these Judaizers ever showed up in their churches and started saying, hey, you need the law. Paul points that out in verses 4 and 5. In verse 5 he says that the Spirit was already working in Galatia, that the Spirit was bringing about miracles, likely referring to physical healings. The Holy Spirit was bringing about miracles among them. In verse four, the Holy Spirit was empowering them to endure persecution with great faith and confidence and perseverance. So again, this is a rhetorical question. Paul saying the Spirit's already been active in your life. The Spirit's already been active in the churches. Way before these Judaizers got here and said, hey, you really want to belong to God's people? Hey, you really want to move forward spiritually while well, men go get circumcised? Everybody start eating this kind of food and don't eat that food. Everybody honor these holy days and these Sabbath festivals. Long before all that came in, the Spirit was already moving. So Paul at the end of verse 4 is essentially saying, if you abandon this now, everything that you've endured, everything that the Spirit has been doing among you is all in vain. You're going to shipwreck your faith. So here's the first of our two keys this morning. Paul is saying to the Galatian churches, and to you if you're a Christian here this morning, Paul is saying this, you already have the Spirit. So why on earth would you revert to something else in your efforts to move forward? Now the presence of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, in the lives of these Christians is hugely significant. This gets lost on us because this is all we've ever known. This is huge for these Galatian Christians. Under the Old Covenant, meaning when God's people were in fact under the law of Moses, God promised that one day he was going to usher in a brand new covenant with his people. And listen, the distinguishing mark of the new covenant was that God's Spirit would take up residence inside the hearts of God's people. This was remarkable. If you read the Old Testament, you notice that at different points in salvation history, the Spirit of God fills a person, a man or a woman of God, at different points. But under the new covenant, God promised that his Spirit would reside permanently in his people, that we would in fact now become the temple of the Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 31 31 through 34 uh, helps us to understand the new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah. These are the words that God shared with his people. This is verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Check this out. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Where was the law written under the old covenant? First, it was on two tablets of stone coming down from Sinai. Later, it was written In the Torah. And God says, there's going to come a day where it's not going to be physically written in a book. My law will be inscribed on their hearts via my Holy Spirit. Ezekiel makes the connection crystal clear. Here's Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So connecting these ideas, God is saying under the new covenant, my law will be written on your heart. My spirit will be in your heart, empowering you to obey the law of Christ. And that's where the Galatians are already at. They have the spirit already. They are members of this new covenant, this day that Israel was looking forward to. Why on earth would they go backward in salvation history? So now when the Judaizers showed up to Galatia and said to the the Christians there, hey, great, you believe in Jesus. That's awesome. It's a great starting point. Now all you need to do is obey the law to fully belong to God's people or to really move forward spiritually spiritually. That was utter nonsense. And that's what Paul seems to call it, right? Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish, he writes? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Family, spiritual growth is exactly that. It's spiritual. It is wrought by the Holy Spirit period. This is how we grow spiritually. This is how we become more like Jesus. This is how we mature in our faith. It is the work of the Spirit who makes us spiritual. Galatians 5.16, Paul's going to unpack this at length, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So how do we start putting to death the sin in our life? Well, it's by the Spirit. Of course, famously in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul outlines the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit that the Spirit produces in the lives of God's people. Romans 8, 14, "...for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God." All spiritual growth is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit himself. And so Paul's point up to now is to say this, that you were justified by faith and you received the Spirit by faith. Faith is the thing that matters. So to now turn away from that, to embrace the law, would be to go backward. Now, this temptation is ever-present for Christians, this temptation to begin the Christian journey by faith, by receiving the gospel, and then attempt to move on to something else so that we can grow. So many Christians that I've talked to over the years think of the gospel as the kind of entrance exam into Christianity, that the gospel is for beginners, oh yeah, yeah, the gospel, that's the message that we share to evangelize people. And I believe that, and I received that when I came to faith 25 years ago. But after receiving the gospel, well, now I move on to bigger and better things. Now I move on to kind of grown-up spiritual things. False. The entire Christian life is lived in the reality of the gospel. As Paul put it last week in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the great apostle Paul saying as I'm on my Christian journey, here's the way I'm living my life. I'm living it by faith in the Son of God of God, period. And this temptation to say, well, yeah, I kind of began there, but now I've got to turn to some other things to really flourish spiritually. Like I said, it's ever-present, and it manifests itself in so many different ways. I'll give you a few examples. I think one of the worst ones and the easiest to fall into for Christians is moralism. Moralism, What is moralism? It means that the Christian life is about following the rules. So moralism is, hey, the gospel, I received that by faith, and now, okay, let me just pull myself up by my own bootstraps and just get all these rules, get all these things taken care of, and and learn how to grow that way. It's about doing the right thing. Pragmatism is another example, meaning that the Christian life is about doing whatever works, whatever gives me the results I'm looking for. Emotionalism is another one. The Christian life is about feelings and experiences. Yeah, it was great that I received Jesus, but now it's about going after that next experience or having certain feelings constantly. That's emotionalism. Legalism. The Christian life is about earning or keeping God's favor liberalism, Christian life is about progressing with the times, Roman Catholicism, the Christian life is about rituals, rites, and sacraments, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Christian life is about tradition, mysticism, the Christian life is about deeper knowledge, asceticism, the Christian life is about restraint of physical pleasures, and on and on you could go, and many Protestants, many people that I've even seen in the 15 years that I've been a Christian, people that I have known at one point, accepted that it was about faith in Christ alone, but have moved to one of these things that I just listed here in an effort to go deeper and to progress further. Paul couldn't be any clearer. The Christian life, from beginning to end, is about faith in Christ. Now, Paul shifts in verse 6, and to a reader, it seems pretty abrupt, but in fact, it's a genius move because he's already reminded them of their own personal history. But now he, he has this stroke of genius where he wants to point to salvation history. Let me read it for you. Chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Here, Paul makes this shift in verse 6. Obviously, it's one sentence with verse 5. So he's kind of mid-sentence, shifting now in verse 6 to Salvation history, Paul looks back at salvation history, meaning this, how was somebody saved historically? Or to put it differently to you, how did an individual become a believer in the Old Testament? Now, lots of Christians wrongly assume that in the Old Testament, people got saved by obeying the law, then came Jesus, and now we're saved by grace through faith. And Paul dispels that myth right here for us. How did people become believers in the Old Testament? Well, in a brilliant move, Paul goes back to the start. He points to the greatest example he could possibly point to, which is Father Abraham, the head of it all, the source of the nation. See, the Jewish people trace their roots back to Genesis chapter 12. One of the most significant chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is where God promised their ancestor Abraham that he would make a great nation from him. Here's Genesis 12:1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing.'" I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is where it all began for the Jews. Father Abraham, this great nation would come out of Abraham. And here's the million dollar question for the Galatians. How was the father of the faith justified? How was he declared righteous or in right standing with God? Answer by faith. Verse six, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 15. So three chapters later from chapter 12. Now when you get to Genesis chapter 15, Paul here is, he's quoting verse six. Now, if you read the paragraph, chapter 15, one through six, the situation is bleak. Because again, in chapter 12, God already promised Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You get to chapter 15 and Abraham is sitting there and he's getting pretty discouraged. Because he's looking at himself and he's really old. He's looking at his wife and she's really old. And they're completely barren. They don't have a child. And so all of a sudden, Abraham has a conversation with God. And Abraham's like, look, God, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job. Okay, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do here, Lord. But I know a few things about biology. And this isn't looking like this is going to work out. And what it looks like to me is that my heir is going to be a servant in my house. It's not even going to be my own child. And so Abraham is distraught by this. And so God says to Abraham, hey, that's not the way it's going to work out. I made you a promise. He says, Abraham, go outside of your tent and just look up at the night sky and check out the stars out there. And if you've ever gone and maybe been in the desert or in the forest, somewhere away from light pollution, and you've looked up at the stars, you know that you cannot even begin to fathom the amount of stars that are there. Just from your, your uh, view from your own eyes, forget telescopes. You just can't even fathom how many stars there are. And God says, your your descendants, Abraham, who are going to come from your own body are going to be more numerous than those stars. How ridiculous is that? What a ridiculous promise. And this old man and his elderly wife who were unable to have a child through all of their reproductive years, are sitting there confronted with a promise like that. More descendants than the stars of the heavens. And how does Abram respond? He believed God. And you know, the gospel is filled with promises. And the gospel comes to you. And it is so astounding what God tells you that it's unbelievable God is saying to you that you don't have to do anything in your life. You don't got to get your act together. You don't got to come from the right side of the tracks. You don't got to make the best decisions in your life. You don't have to learn enough things. You don't have to do enough sacrifices, give enough money. You don't do any of that stuff. You look to me and the work that I have done, and here's what I'll give you. Complete forgiveness of every sin you've ever committed. Unrestricted access to my presence. A Father who loves you perfectly and provides for every need you will ever have throughout all of your life. A free ticket to heaven that is irrevocable. There's no blackout dates. And an eternity with me where there are no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more death. And you hear that promise and you sit there and you say to yourself, like Abraham must have felt, you go, there's no way that could be. And the gospel is God's offer to say, trust me. Watch me. Watch me work. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that promise, that seemed so far-fetched, has come true. God's not going to break promises now to us, family. Now, you need to see something here. Paul writes, because Genesis writes, that Abraham believed God, not believed in God, believed God, and there's a world of difference. In fact, James in James 2.19, Helps us to understand it. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, there are lots of people who believe in God that are gonna go to hell. Because there's a world of difference from believing at an intellectual level that, well, yeah, the universe couldn't have got started by nothing, no power, no intelligent designer behind it. I guess there is a God or a force or some other thing out there that is transcendent, that's supernatural. I believe that. There's a world of difference from accepting that at the level of your mind and believing God. Believing God or biblical faith is taking God at his word. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's taking God at his word. God says to Abraham, I will make a great nation of you. Abraham says, I accept that. I trust that. I believe that. Jesus says, I will forgive every sin you've ever committed. My spirit will indwell you. I will write your name in the book of life in heaven. And you say, I believe you. I trust that. I take you at your word. I'm going to live in light of that from this day forward. That is biblical faith. That's what Abraham did. And when he did it, it was counted to him as righteous. Righteousness, excuse me. Now that word counted is so important. Um, It's roughly equivalent to our English word credited, which is of course an accounting term. Um, If you have an American Express card and account and American Express credited your account, that means that they put money in there that wasn't in there before right if you get an email and it says hey we credited your account they just stuck some money in there that you didn't have in there before they credited it so when abraham was credited credited excuse me righteousness it means that abraham was given something that wasn't there before he was giving given righteousness that wasn't there before God was giving Abraham a status. Abraham, you are now righteous before me, even though Abraham, in fact, wasn't righteous. Let me say this differently. Abraham had not attained righteousness through the way he was living his life, and then God was just calling it what it is. Aha, there you go, Abraham. Now you're righteous. God was crediting righteousness to Abraham on the basis of his faith when Abraham believed in God in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 and he was counted righteous circumcision hadn't even been given to the Jews the law hadn't even been given to the Jews so it was not about anything Abraham had done it was simply because he believed Martin Luther's famous phrase is that Christians are simultaneously righteous and sinners that's the amazing paradox That because of Christ and our union with Christ through faith, we are at the same time terribly sinful and flawed and perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. And that should give you both profound humility because of how far you have to go and profound confidence because of your status with God. That's the only way you can move forward in the Christian life without becoming insane. We are simultaneously righteous and sinful. Luther got that right. And Paul shows that faith has always been the way. Abraham was accepted by God by faith and he tells us the same is true of all of Abraham's children in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now I've told you that the debate with the Judaizers was largely largely over the question who are Abraham's children and how do you become one of Abraham's children. We see here that the answer is you don't become Jewish to become Abraham's children, you become a person of faith. Now, many Jews believe that they were good with God simply because of the fact that they were Jewish. They were born into the right family, into the right tribe, into the right people group, and therefore without any other qualifier, they were God's people and they were right with God. And Paul's saying, because the scriptures are saying, that is fundamentally wrong. That's not the way you get right with God. It never was. Now, some people still make this mistake today, especially in a country like America with so much residual Christianity. As many people assume wrongly that because their parents are Christians, let's say, or their grandparents were Christians, that I also am Christian a Christian. Or they wrongly assume that this is going to be a struggle for my children. So Judah and Jace, if you're listening, listen really, really clear, boys. Well, because my daddy's a pastor, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm good with God. That's not how it works. Or people will say, because I belong to this particular church, I'm good with God. I'm right with God. Or because I was baptized at some point in my life. Or This is popular, especially with Independence Day yesterday, because I'm an American. Of course, I'm a Christian. Of course, me and God are right. And Paul is saying in no uncertain terms, this is flatly wrong. To belong to God's family means that you're a person of faith. It's your own personal faith. Now we've run out of time. So let me me just say this. Verse 8 is remarkable because Paul sees all the way back in Genesis 12.3, which I read for you earlier and he quotes here, he sees there a prophecy concerning the Gentiles that in Abraham's family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The Jews assumed that this meant that all the nations would become blessed because the Jews would call the whole world to Judaism. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. God would bring blessing to the whole world by calling the whole world to Jesus through faith. And all the nations would enjoy God's blessings, and all the nations would join God's family through faith alone. Verse 9 summarizes the whole section. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So I told you the key from verses 1 through 5 was this, that If you've received Jesus by faith, you already have the Holy Spirit. So why would you go back? The key here in these verses 6 through 9 is this. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you already belong to God's family. Why would you go back? Why would you look to something else to belong to God's family? You already belong if you've received Jesus by faith. To do either of these things, to look to the law or any other thing besides Jesus To grow spiritually or to belong to God's family would be, according to Paul in verse 1 and 3, utter foolishness. You would be a fool to do that. You would shipwreck your faith. So in conclusion, this chapter is Paul beginning his defense of this amazing doctrine of justification by faith alone, this central core doctrine of our faith, that you are made right with God through nothing that you do, you're made right with God through all of what Christ has done for you and in trusting in His work and not your own. And to make this defense, he points to the Galatians' own personal history that they received forgiveness and justification and received the Holy Spirit just by hearing with faith at the point that Jesus was preached to them. Not only that, Paul points to salvation history to demonstrate that this was always the way. Even their father, Abraham, was justified by faith and not any work that he could do. And through their faith, they already belonged to Abraham's family, so why in the world would they revert to a law that Abraham didn't even obey? It's utter foolishness. And therefore, the message this morning for all of us, whether you're already a Christian or not, is that if you have any hope, of belonging to God's family, if you have any hope of being declared righteous before God on Judgment Day, if you have any hope of being filled by the Spirit of God and actually becoming the person that God created you to be, that hope is only going to be fulfilled through faith in Jesus Christ by believing God. And so I would ask you this morning, are you doing that? Are you believing God? Are you taking God at his word? And if not, would you like to? Would you like to begin believing God today and experience forgiveness and be declared righteous and be filled with his presence? Because today in the quietness of your own heart, you can call on the Lord and be saved. Jesus promises you that. And I know that might sound too good be, to be true, but it is true, and we hope you'll do that. All of us, when we walked in this morning, were handed communion elements, or rather we didn't hand them, hand them to you because we can't do that, so you picked them up yourself off the table. And I would invite you to grab those elements if you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus, meaning What I've been saying all sermon long, you've put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation. I'd invite you to grab these elements and open them. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper together before we pray and close. Now, what's so interesting to me is that those who belong to Abraham's family belong to Christ, as I've been saying. And under the Old Covenant, God's family had certain identity markers, certain things that they did and practiced that set them apart from those who didn't belong to God's family. And again, under the old covenant, it was things like circumcision. It was things like dietary laws. It was things like Sabbath observance. Well, under the new covenant, God's people still have identity markers. God's people still have things that distinguish us as members of God's family from those who aren't a part of God's family. And those identity markers are baptism, And communion or the Lord's Supper. Baptism is that initial distinguishing mark. It's that initial way that you are set apart publicly as a person who belongs to the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is an aside, but I would say to you if you've put your faith in Jesus and you've never been baptized, you need to rectify that ASAP. You need to talk to Pastor Ryan or myself, and we would love. To baptize you but after a person's been baptized the ongoing ordinance in the church that again demonstrates to the world who belongs to God's family and who doesn't is the Lord's Supper and so Jesus on the night he was betrayed said to his followers take these elements the bread and the cup and receive these often in remembrance of me and in doing so Jesus was distinguishing forever those who belong to his family by faith and those who didn't. As well as Jesus was helping us to always remember through what these two elements symbolize the way that we enter into that family. It's through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The body being symbolized in the bread and the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins, of course, being symbolized by the cup and Jesus said to us as his followers do this in remembrance of me and so this morning if you belong to the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ I'm going to lead us in a prayer of gratitude to Christ and then together we'll receive these elements as the family of God so let's pray together father we are so blown away once again by the amazing news of the gospel That God, because of our sin, we could never, ever live up to your standards. Because of our sin, we would be forever alienated from you and separated from you, not only in this life, but throughout all of eternity in a place called hell. But because of the great love with which you loved us, you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that through faith in him we might become the children of God. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in that today. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying and rising. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking up residence in our hearts. God, we love you. We worship you. We honor you today. And we recognize once again this morning that our standing with you is always and forever based on what Christ has done for us. So we receive these elements gladly. We receive them with joy in our heart, and we proclaim again the Lord's death until he comes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's partake together.